Hi, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Brand Called You. This is a podcast and a video chat where we talk to some of the most fascinating thought leaders from around the country. Uh, my name is Lisa Lipkin. I'm your host, and I am super excited about today's guest. Um, if you're a political junkie the way I am, and there's a campaign going on in America, you can't turn on the TV, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, doesn't matter, without meeting our next guest, Hank Scheinkopf. Welcome. A little bit thank about Thank you very much. A little yeah, bit thank about you for having me in today. Hank is a political consultant. Uh, he runs Scheinkopf Communications, and he has run over 700 campaigns in over four continents, um, including some pretty exciting people that he's worked with, such as the former president, Bill Clinton, on his reelection campaign. He worked for Mike Bloomberg, who was a mayor of New York City, well-known. Um, he's worked for uh, the former president of the Dominican Republic, Leono Fernandez. And Hank, I'm super excited to have you here. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I, I never think of it as being honorable to meet me at all, but I'm grateful you do. Well, so I want to actually start in a way with the end, with the end of a certain type of career that you forged for yourself. And it's based on something rather haunting that you said to me. You said to me that moving forward, you don't think you want to work with any candidates anymore on any campaigns. Um, it sent chills down my spine, and I was wondering if you could articulate that for our audience, explain why you're suddenly disillusioned and cynical, perhaps, and changing direction. There's too many people involved in this. You know, when I started and when um, I was solidly in the second generation of political consultants at the front end of it, actually, that reveals my age somewhat, but we thought of ourselves as clarence of democracy and, and um, in partnerships when I, when I had business partners. We thought of ourselves as warriors. That's not the case anymore. This has become, like all things, a uh, an industry. Uh, corporate companies in this business are now taking over. This was once a a um, kind of a, a home home industry uh, of people who just did it, and now it's become something else. So the consultants are terrible, terrible humans, and the uh, they're not really interested in ideolo ideological issues. They only pick them for convenience. I mean, there's one firm in the United States, Global Strategies, that calls itself a democratic firm, but worked with uh, worked with Amazon to bust the union when they were organizing, when the union was organizing Amazon. Has uh, worked for hedge funds. Um, just got taken, just got an influx of cash from an international multinational corporation, so they could work in Dubai and other places around the world. I mean, it's just. Um, there's no real romance anymore and there's no real fight anymore. And I was a romantic fighter. So that's over. That's over. The whole thing's over. So you are a romantic fighter. And I suppose what you're suggesting is that the ideology, the passion that candidates had for new ideas has in some ways taken a backseat to politics and, and power. And money, money. And what, what's also happened is that, uh, that there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's the nature of things, but I, an ideology is fine. But you can respect somebody who kind of works for people on the right if they really believe it. What we have is people who don't believe in anything. This is simply about positioning and it's about uh, money. 
Um, and there's nothing wrong with making a buck. I mean, look, I, I'm grateful to the business. Uh, it gave me tremendous opportunity. It made, gave me some minor celebrity. I get to write and think, and I got to write great ads, and I get to think about things, and I got to direct campaigns. Um, you know, it's it's just a very different than it is. Today, I'm working on a lot of independent expenditure activities, which are different. Now, I, I know you also worked in Europe and, and, and abroad, where there really are quite a different set of campaign finance controls there. And doesn't it make a huge difference in how people run campaigns and monetize them if there are campaign finance laws that regulate that? It does have a lot to do with it. The United States, um, and I'm, I suspect in other countries that are leaning to, to be much more authoritarian, has a, a problem. The problem is campaign finance reform, which is, would be required to protect democracy. The influx of unregulated money, um, of um, special interests that uh, to control the, the, the discourse simply because they have economic interests involved is, is significant and is undermining democracy. The, found, the founders of the American Republic understood this very well, and they worried about factionalism. The new factionalism is about corporations that seek to control outcomes of elections. And that is uh, not what the founders had in mind. So is the course of things too late to turn? Um, I mean, can we turn the tide? Or do you pretend worse and then even worse beyond that? In the, um, the, the Supreme Court decision in the United States, which has been a model for many things around the world, uh, Citizens United allowed the inflow of, uh, of what we call dark money or dirty money. Dark money is better. It's not dirty money. Yeah, money is money you know, but dark money into political campaigns in an unregulated fashion under the guise of freedom of speech. So it's not likely the trend will be uh, changed. Not likely at all. And so therefore you have to put your talents where you can still make a difference in a profound way. Well, you have to try anyway. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm a cause sucker. You know, I, you know, I've worked in places where I thought the stakes were high. I guess if I, I could have made a lot more money, but I, I enjoyed what I was doing. You know, I, I think the, some of the things that I, I was involved with over the years um, have, me, have meaning. There's no book in them. I mean, people say, oh, Hank, write a book. Uh, who's going to read? I read this joke. But I, I do think that um, I worked a lot in the deep south of the United States. I think the, the fights there against the insurance industry, for example, on behalf of people who wanted to have trials as opposed to arbitrations or who wanted to, you know, take on corporations was not insignificant. Um, fighting, you know, working for uh, teachers organizations in Alabama, the Alabama Education Association, for example, to ensure that uh, education dollars were appropriately spent or for Alabama trial lawyers to stop the corporations from stealing uh, money from people or refusing to pay claims. Um, I worked in, I, I worked throughout the Deep South. And I think that, uh, I think that those experiences were very important, very, very important for me. So how did a nice Jewish guy from the Bronx suddenly find himself in Alabama? Well, you got to get on an airplane. You know, it's the first thing I, you know, in those years, the business was different. You know, and the guy who really revolutionized it in many ways was Dick Morris, who uh, was a great influence on me. And he would just get on airplanes and he'd go to places and he'd, uh, he'd pick up the phone. He'd call somebody and say, oh, I'm just happened to be in Lafayette, uh, you know, Louisiana tomorrow, which is kind of ridiculous. He lived in Manhattan. But he got on a plane, he'd go there and he'd sell a campaign. Um, and he changed American politics and changed international politics in the process. And so I followed his lead and I just got on airplanes and I went, to, but the Alabama story is great. I get, it's a great story. 
I get invited. I met a guy who was living in Arizona, who was the head of the Arizona Democratic Party for a while, the, the day-to-day executive director. And he calls me and says, I need to talk to you. And I'm running for office. Could you come and see me? So I get an airplane and I go and see him in Phoenix. And um, he says, we got to have lunch with this guy. And I said, oh, whoever, who's the guy? He says, you'll see. So I go to have lunch. It's in a strip mall and a restaurant and um, park in the parking lot, go into the, into the restaurant. And the guy, uh, this is about 250, looked for me about 5'11", a little bit overweight. And he had a lighter in his hands, a Zippo lighter. He kept flitch, flicking him. He's talking about gaming. We're going to put money in. You should go to the unions, go get money. And I said, wait a second. I said, go get cash. He says, no, I'm not doing that. I said, what you should do is I gave him a legal way to do it. And he says, no, we'll do it the other way. I said, I leave the meeting. I leave the lunch. I take the guy who brought me. He's a former director, executive director of the Arizona Democratic Party. is running for statewide office. And I said, now listen to me very carefully. I said, this guy is a cop. This is a setup. And if you do what he asks, you're all going to jail. So a year later, they all get arrested. But in the meantime, the next morning, I get a meeting with a fellow. He was a professor. I think his name was Kimmelman, who also got into trouble for some reason. What he's doing in Phoenix, I have no idea. I was sitting down having breakfast. He says, you know, you really should go to Alabama. I said, why? He says, a lot of action, a lot of stuff happening. I said, okay. He said, and you should call a fellow named Paul Hubbard, who's since passed, but was a tremendous influence on my life, who runs the Alabama Education Association. And he's got the power and the resources you should go see him so i call up and sure enough i get an airplane and you know there's a u.s senator on an airplane there's no problem. it's ridiculous and i get to the alabama education association the next day and i'm hired and i didn't leave um off and on for the next 20 years that's really interesting so so how did your newfound understanding of southern culture affect the work you did in the rest of america well, it made me understand that, you know, this bias that Northerners have against Southerners is absolutely outrageous. Um, the Southerners have every reason to be angry. Um, the um, post-Reconstruction, post-Civil War policies in many ways didn't change until Bill Clinton became the president. I mean, you know, the, the South was economically isolated uh, after the war. Uh, it was in a, it never was, um, put through any kind of real change. I mean, they, it reverberated to a racist and uh, slave, you know, post-slave driven economy. Uh, it was terrible. And, you know, there were people who thought that that was not the best way to live because that, that economy and that lifestyle excluded significant numbers of people, not just blacks, but blue collar whites. And they thought they ought to have the opportunity to change their lives. So the Alabama Education Association in those years was a place to do it. And there were organizations like that at Deep South. I worked for trial lawyers in New Orleans, in Louisiana. Um, I worked uh, ditto in Mississippi, ditto in uh, Virginia. I worked on campaigns in Florida, up in the Panhandle as well. I worked in the Carolinas. I mean, you know, Texas, I did it. It was very interesting. It made me understand America. Uh, and frankly, it made me understand um, how different people think. And it was very helpful to me people different than me with different backgrounds. It was very helpful to me in my international work. It helped me adjust. I was able to have in real insight almost instantly into people. I think the other thing that was different about my way of doing business was that I had an emotional connection very quickly with people. I could sense what they were feeling, how they were emoting, what they were thinking about, how they expressed it. And I could write ads and communications materials that, that fit them, not me. I didn't bring all kinds of preconceived ideas 
to my work. I want to listen to what people I, think, I was dealing with were thinking and feeling. Mostly it's feeling, you know, nobody votes from their head. They really vote from their gut. You know, you have admitted that you had a very rough childhood growing up. And I, I am of the belief that you kind of develop a hypo, hyper radar when you've had trauma in your life. You kind of figure out how to read clues first in your own parents, but then you take that hyper radar with you into the work you do and for the rest of your life. And I know that was the case with me and I'm wondering if it was the same for you. Do you think that's why you were maybe particularly sen sensitive to the plight of others because of that hyper radar that you developed as a kid? Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I was, uh, my mother, my mother abandoned us, I guess, when I was five or six. Um, and I didn't live in an intact home until I uh, married the second time. So, I, you know, so I have a, a different view. I think I became more sensitive to the environment around me. I think I wasn't interested in impressing people as much as I was interested in survival. So I could sense what the environment was like and I adjusted accordingly. Uh, it wasn't to please people. I wanted to ensure that I could, yeah. I could um, communicate with them. Yeah. And that's what I learned to do. And I think you also learned how to be a street fighter, which undoubtedly plays out, especially in New York politics, no? Well, it plays out every place. I have to tell you that uh, New York politics thinks, I mean, I've worked a lot in New York and I didn't work here for 20 years in New York, but New York, New York people think that they're really tough. But the truth is the campaigns in the South are much tougher. Really? People are much more, much more aggressive, um, much more aggressive and smarter about it. New Yorkers just, they, they just, blah, blah, they talk a lot and they think they're brighter, but they're not. I mean, one of the more fascinating things about your resume is that you studied to be a rabbi. And I'm, I'm actually really curious how that particular study, whether it was the Talmud or reading the great Bible stories, how did you bring that? discipline to your work as a political consultant? More discipline, um, more logic in some ways, less logic in others. You know, the, the business of doing what I do is really about manipulating and you know, manipulating emotion or getting people. It, it's, a, it's a ridiculous idea when you think about this for a second, is this is based upon the idea that somehow you can get a di very diverse group of people to do the same thing on the same day at the same time, which is kind of like asking, you know, cows to move along in different groupings. You know, it's asking cats to be together. I mean, it's, it's absurd and idiotic when you think about it. So how does being disciplined and your thinking help you do that? Well, it creates a message, mm. very clear. Mm. You have to think it through that gets people to do that, which is absolutely pathological. Show up at the same place, same time, same day, do the same thing, and get them to do what you want them to do when they get there. And it's that, arduous and, enough. And that's the discipline of studying. Studying. Sure, absolutely. It's the, it's the discipline of studying and you know and, and learning uh, and understanding law, because a lot of what in, in in rabbinics and I think also in other religions, what people learn is basic law of that religion or or how they're supposed to behave and what is the rationale for. It's not just dictum. Yeah. It's why you do it under what circumstances and what the basis is for it. You know, I'm a bit of an amateur theologian myself, and I found that reading Bible stories really helped me understand human nature and, and particularly political candidates. For example, I always saw Donald Trump as 
a pharaoh, like a classic pharaoh in an Egyptian Bible story, you know, surrounded by his family, ruthless. His behavior seemed to be mimicked in the Bible repeatedly. And I don't know if you ever saw any of the candidates you worked with as biblical figures as well. I saw some of them as extraordinarily good people. Um, um, some of them who, uh, you know, you often do your best work in losing campaigns, truthfully, um, if you're engaged with the clients at all. What does that mean? The candidate. Well, you know, you, if you feel strongly about it and you know you've got an underdog, you're going to work harder. If you care about the underdog, you're not just in it for the cash because you can always get, if you're any competent at all. Today, there's a campaign a minute. You know, there's people who make a living in the United States doing campaigns for, uh, to, uh, to require uh, whiskey to be sold by the glass in some places, in some counties and in, in, in rural areas. I mean, you know, make a good buck doing that. There are people who make their money in California working on um, bond issues because you can't fund a school. You can't get a school tax unless you get 66 and two thirds percent of the electorate to agree to it within a school board area. Um, people make their living on propositions, you know, non-candidate campaigns. There's all kinds of stuff. So, you know, that teaches you to personalize the event. You've got to kind of make people want to turn out, or maybe you don't. Um, the experience of, of, of studying is one of discipline. It disciplines message. It makes you understand that people respond to clear arguments, that if it's muddy, they won't pay attention, that there's all kinds of ways to explain things. Bible stories, um, which I didn't learn a lot of. I mean, you know, the... the um, if you look at the, uh, if you look at Joshua, for example, the beginning of the, of the non, non, um, the, the really people would say the sixth book of the of the of the Torah, the sixth book of Moses, really, after his death, after Moses' death, but that's about discipline and renewal, and organization, uh, and um, and a little bit of um, what's a good word, uh, not rigidity, but absolute belief. It's uh, it's pretty extraordinary. You know, it's very interesting, but in a way I do similar work. I'm, I'm a story strategist and it's my job to help people use storytelling to make a compelling argument. And I find myself increasingly reaching for the neuroscience, which is pretty ample these days, uh, the neuroscience of why we believe a lie, the neuroscience of how to get people engaged. And when I think about that now, this belief in the big lie that the election was stolen, for example, has to be more than just a cultural art argument. I mean, this is clearly tapping in to something that's in our prim primitive brain beyond our control. And I wonder whether you started to work as well with the neuroscience of the brain, you know, thinking about how to manipulate it from a neuroscience perspective. Away from, away from my religious training, I have a PhD in political science. And I spend a lot of time reading and I do teach. I mean, I've just, I think I'm finished teaching now for the rest of the, until the end, as you say, I mean, I've taught graduate students for years. Um, I'm reading a lot about authoritarianism. I think people to read include the, uh, Professor Tim Snyder, uh, Timothy Snyder, and I think uh, uh, Ann Applebaum, who writes for the Washington Post, has written extensively. Um, her book on the Ukraine is, and the famine is very important. So it tells you about uh, about authoritarian systems, uh, about their uh, their extreme behavior, and how they function. And Snyder's a book on tyranny, which is a small book, uh, is really important to read because we learn from from these scholars. And uh, Ruth Ben Gilad, I think, is her name. I just read her as well. 
I think what we learn from these scholars is how the great, how truth and its death allows authoritarianism to function. And part of the great lie about the American election of 20, uh, 20, uh, 2020 is that somehow democracy failed. And that is a dangerous, dangerous idea. Democracy failing results in people like Orban in Hungary. But is it democracy failing or is it, as I mentioned, something that's tapping into something much more primitive, a, a very primitive survival mode in our brains that's beyond democracy? You're, you're right. I mean, I would, I would extend, you're exactly correct. And I would extend the argument this way, that the American response is one of paranoia to a changing environment. How so? The United States is demographically shifting very rapidly. I talked about this a long time ago. It is becoming much less, uh, most of the people in the United States today cannot trace their roots to Europe, which is a new phenomenon. They can now trace their roots to Africa and Asia and Latin America and the Caribbean, not to Europe. Right. So their whole perspective is different. Uh, and that is going to change American foreign policy. It's going to change the American outlook. It's going to change America's view of the world uh, in every way, shape, and form. And it's going, to, it's going to inform us in different ways. So are you saying that the only possible winning campaign is one that addresses a fear of change these days? Well, I'm not sure. That, that You may be correct, and that's the logical outcome of this discussion, this part of our discussion. I would argue that the winning campaign is one that restores, that seeks to restore values that are about humanness because what happened in the in the, 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 in the, in the whole uh, discussion of uh, ridiculous discussion and the falsehoods denial of the, of the uh, outcomes of the 2020 election is that people who are aggrieved are looking for fairness they're aggrieved because the America that they knew is no longer existing and they're acting in a way that allows them to vent that concern that anger and anxiety and what are they doing? They're clinging to the hopes of a man who also agrees with them. He's going to make America great again, but not the America that exists, the America that they think should exist. The and by doing America. the fantasy America. It really existed, to be honest. It never existed. Well, it hasn't existed. You know, think about the economic conditions. It hasn't existed for probably, you know, 60 years. And certainly hasn't existed since NAFTA, since the North American uh, North American uh, since the treaty which created uh, which got rid of the effectively the borders between the United States and Mexico as it applied to economic activity. So you know I, I'm the child of a Holocaust survivor and uh, so instead of fantasizing that Prince Charming was walking through my window the way most kids did I pictured the Nazis coming through instead you know so I obviously have a heightened sense of paranoia but I do portend a kind of fascism coming to America so please tell me I'm wrong. No, I, I think you're you're in the, you're on the mark. I mean, the co the combination of corporate uh, of corporate the destruction of free unions, free trade unions, which has been the model for the last forty years, the um, the the political activity of corporations and the tax structure that does nothing but ensures the great economic divide, and then the requirement that somehow those who are most aggrieved be stopped before they engage in violence because they have every right to be angry, but violence is an extreme. You put that all together and you come up with a, with a cackling kind of burning, you know, boiling cauldron that uh, somebody has to say, look, we've got to fix this, but that's not what's happening. What's happening is that we're creating more anger and more uh, fuel on the fire and more division. 
there are no unifying arguments anymore. So what America needs is a unifying argument. Maybe standing up for the people of Ukraine is one way to think about it. Maybe that helps. Maybe understanding that the great American problem is one internationally, is one that uh, Graham Allison, the great, the great authority of the Cuban Missile Crisis, wrote a book about, uh, about uh, this Thucydides trap, which is kind of important. You know, Thucydides, the historian of the war between Sparta and Athens, he looks and he says, look, you know, the power that wants to be in power will seek to overtake the power in power, and that will cause wars. And by the way, then it means China. So, you know, kind of redirecting how the Americans look at the world and whether they can sustain Pax Americana. The Ukraine is the test of whether the Pax Americana, the peace that Americans created after the Second World War, for which many young men, about 400 and almost 500,000 of them Americans, paid the price, um, whether that can exist. And if it doesn't, the world is in much greater trouble because with all its problems, America is still the great hope. So you're not leaving anytime soon? would have me who would have a free thinking guy who likes to who likes to travel the world and smile at people you know i'm personally very frightened by what i see happening in the school system in america because i think critical thinking skills thinking about the other is absolutely the answer and now that's being banned in many of our school systems if you cannot identify with the other how can you run a political campaign right that wins if you cannot identify with the other how can you create social policy that has value over time and if you cannot identify with the other, how can you understand or create economic policy that seeks to bridge gaps and create fairness in an economic system that's set up for exploitation? It's very hard, very, very difficult. So, so what are you working on these days? I mean, what, what is driving your passion these days? I think that the, I think that the relationships between police and, and non-police is very important. I think people fail to consider that fascism or authoritarian systems have largely come out of democratic process. People have elected these things. I mean, Hitler was put into power by a democratically elected legislature, the Reichstag. Absolutely. He promised Kerensky, the Volkswagen, didn't he? Len Lenin came into power because he overthrew Kerensky, who was a democratic regime. Right. And on and on and on and on. You can look at regimes throughout the world. You see the same dynamic in action. So we have a responsibility to somehow create order out of chaos, but not allow those creating the order out of that chaos to be overpowering. The great American system is that the military and the police are entirely separate. What Donald Trump tried to do that memorable day in Washington was to get the army to intervene as a police force in demonstrations in, in, in Washington, D.C. And the army in the, in the great, great defense of democracy said, no, we won't. That was and, very and frankly. Yeah. And frankly, rebelled against the commander in chief, which is a very extraordinary event. If we do not have some order, if we do not have the capacity for people to walk safely, to be safe, and for their political opinions not to be impinged upon by others, we will have an authoritarian system and we'll have, we will be policing ourselves out of existence. That great line that allows democracy to function is one of permitting people to be different, unique, but not to impinge on the rights of others to be different and unique in other ways. Can we end this interview on an optimistic note? Um, I think that America is the great hope for the world. If not, it wouldn't be discussed all the time. The Americans have been uh, extraordinarily generous people. Their largesse has, has helped the people live better throughout the world. 
it started contracting in a much more political fashion during the Reagan years. That's pretty clear. Um, but the, the, the West still has much to teach the world in democratic practice. And if they didn't want, believe it, if the world didn't believe it, people would not be clamoring to get into the, into the United States in one fashion or another. Under, all, under the most extraordinary circumstances with the greatest hope and the greatest belief that they can only better themselves in a place where they have the opportunity to be themselves. Well, thank you. I'm gonna end on that note and hold it in my heart. You've appeased some of my fears, if not all of them. Well, I can't tell me, you know, that we, we need we will be able to see each other again and we will talk to Sue, as a psychiatrist would say. Over a babka. Over a babka, yeah. No, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thank you and all the best to you too. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me in. Thank you. Bye-bye. All the best. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.